Our first reading comes from Psalm 22, which can be found on page 457 of the Church Bibles. This is part of a prayer written by God's suffering king around a thousand years before Jesus came. Psalm 22, starting at verse 4. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melts within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Our second reading this morning is from Luke 23, starting at verse 26. This can be found on page 884 of the Church Bibles. Luke 23, starting at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching, But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, 
coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One criminal, who, one of the criminals who was hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Well, thank you very much, James. And please do keep that passage open in front of you. The Luke passage is where we're going to be, page 884 in the Church Bibles. And let me say, this is a, a wonderful Sunday to be in church. I mean, any Sunday is a good Sunday to, to, to gather around God's Word. But this passage, of all passages in the Bible, brings us right to the heart of Christianity, right to the center. That means if you're new to Christian things, uh, just kind of looking in on what we believe, this is a great passage to be reflecting on. And those of us who've been followers for a while, uh, maybe a bit weary, some of us, maybe a bit wobbly, some of us, battling doubts, um, or maybe just need an encouragement about how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. This is a great passage to come to. So let me pray for God's help as we begin. Our Father in heaven, your word is clear that no one can truly understand the cross without your help. And so we pray for your help this morning. Please open our eyes and our hearts to see your glory in the face of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a long time coming, getting to the cross. 
if you've been around since January 2021, um, you will have heard, and, and tuned in every week, you will have heard 58 sermons on Luke's gospel. That's a lot, isn't it? Remarkable. Uh, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Uh, it's got 23 chapters, but each of the chapters is massive, so it is actually the longest book. And we've been working our way through from the start all the way to this climactic moment at the cross. If you've been around our small group since September, we've had 27 Bible studies since chapter 9. And what happened in chapter 9 was Jesus set his face to go towards the cross. That's why we called the series The Cross-Bound Christ. And finally, now, here he is. It's been a long time coming. But actually, it hasn't just been two years of our church life, or three years of Jesus' public ministry, or even 33 years of his life since those prophecies when he was held as a baby at the start of Luke, and people said that he was going to save the world through his suffering. Not just 33 years. Actually, God has been planning this event for over a millennium. From the moment in Egypt, one and a half thousand years ago, when he rescued Israel through a Passover lamb, the death of this substitute, this lamb. From the suffering Psalms of David, which we just read one of those, a thousand years before Jesus. From the suffering servant prophecies of Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before the cross. It all leads here. What I'm saying is every road in the Bible leads here, to the death of Jesus this week and next week, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, normally we talk about that at Easter, but it's actually quite good to be talking about it in the summer, to to kind of get the the, the eggs and the the kind of big Easter lunch out of our minds and all the traditions and actually just have a, a clear look at what's going on at the cross. And we're going to see the very heart of Christianity. In fact, so clear is the explanation about how to become a Christian in this chapter, how to get right with God, to be safe for eternity. So clear is it that I'm going to, at the end of this talk, pray a prayer if anyone wants to become a Christian. I think it's a great opportunity to do it. Uh, Most of us, we never know when our last day will come. But the thief on the cross, crucified next to Jesus, did know. It was obvious that was his last day. And just listen to the way he seeks and finds forgiveness. Uh, Have a look down at verses 39 to uh, 43. This is actually going to be our third point of of my talk, but I'm giving you a preview to give you a bit of time to think, do I want to pray this kind of prayer if you're not yet a Christian? Verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think there are three simple steps the criminal goes through here. A kind of A, B, C. A, he admits he's guilty. B, he believes Jesus died innocently. And C, he calls on Jesus for forgiveness and a place in God's kingdom. It's actually quite simple. A, B, C. Admit I'm in trouble with God. Believe Jesus died innocently in our place. 
See, call on Jesus for forgiveness and a place in his kingdom. It is as simple as that. In fact, we hear Jesus giving that promise, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in Paris, to prove it's that simple. Whether you recently arrived or been around for years, all of us need the forgiveness Jesus offers at the cross. All of us can have it if we just pray like this, call on his name. I've been praying this week that some would do that, that this would be the morning where you think, do you know what, I've heard enough. I've heard enough to know that I'm not right with God. I've seen enough of Jesus to know he, he is. And so I'm going to call on him for a place in eternity with my maker. Just before the, the, the Christians turn off in the room, I'm also praying, I'm praying that there'll be some folk like that. I'm also praying that for those of us who are believers, this would just give us great assurance. Uh, it's very possible to wobble in the Christian life, whether just from exhaustion and weariness, kind of, is this really worth it? Or from doubts, is this really true? Um, and if that's you, this is a great passage to reflect on. Or even if you're buzzing at the moment about following Jesus and you can't wait to go to a summer camp and, and tell someone else or, or chat to friends over the summer, well, please would you clock these verses. Verses 39 to 43 are a great place to take someone. If you ever have the privilege of someone sitting next to you and saying, I think I want to become a Christian, well, remember these verses. It's a great place to take people. Okay, enough on that. That will be point three when we get there, but you can think about whether you'd like to pray that prayer. One other thing before we dive into the passage and work our way through. One other overall thing. I want you to notice, if you just scan your eyes through the passage, I want you to notice where Luke is pointing the camera. So we've been building up to the cross for so long, and actually where he's pointing the camera is not at the cross. There's not actually much description of Jesus, what he looks like, or details about the cross. Instead, the camera is pointing at people looking at the cross. Let me just show you that so you see what I mean. Verse 27, we meet this great multitude of people, this crowd and some women who are mourning and lamenting for Jesus. They're the onlookers. Verse 35, we see the people stood by watching. We see the rulers who are scoffing at him, saying, huh, can't even save himself, what kind of king is that? Verse 36, we see soldiers mocking him, offering him wine. Verse 39, you see the criminals and what they make of him. Uh, again, kind of mocking him. Even once Jesus is, is dying and dead, uh, sorry, dead, verse 47, the centurion gives us his verdict on what's gone on. Then verse 48, the crowds that assembled for the spectacle go home beating their breasts. 49, the acquaintances, the women stood at a distance watching them. And then Joseph of Arimathea and so on and so on. See what Luke is doing? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Rather than the camera being centred on the cross, it's centred on the people watching the cross, the people looking on at what's going on. And they are such different reactions to it. There's these crowds who are just kind of saddened by the whole spectacle of it. Whoa, what a horrible, tragic event. Poor Jesus. And none the wiser as to what it means. Then there's others who are mocking Jesus. They think it's hilarious. The religious leaders, the soldiers, the other criminal. I mean, what a pathetic, humiliating end. So much for this guy's big claims to save. And then there's a third group, like the criminal who gets saved, or the centurion, or Joseph, this council member, who look at the cross and see there's something amazing going on. 
that the, the doors to God's kingdom are being opened up. Lots of reactions then. And I think Luke's doing that to say to us, to you, what is your view of the cross? What do you make of him, that man hanging there? What's actually going on here? You'll see there's an outline on the back of the server sheet. Our first two points are about that. They're, they're, they're Luke shifting our perspective from something that the cross might look like if you don't have a kind of proper look, something you might have kind of wrong perspective we might easily think of, and then a correction of what's really going on. Um, and then we'll get to the, the thief and the prayer in our third point. So point one then. The cross is not the big tragedy here. Facing God's judgment unforgiven is a tragedy. That's our first point. It's the first shift of perspective. The cross is not the big tragedy here. Facing God's judgment unforgiven is a tragedy. Now I'm saying that because if you look at the start of our passage, verse 27, there's this great crowd of people mourning, these women lamenting for him. And I think you can understand why. If you imagine the situation, um, we saw last week, twice Jesus is gang-beaten by soldiers twice. And then Pilate um, judicially gives him a flogging. It must just be a ter- he must be a terrible sight by now. I assume why Simon of Cyrene has to ca- carry the big wooden crossbeam that, that um, uh, they'd carry on the way to the cross. I assume he has to do it because Jesus no longer has the strength. It must have been a tragic sight, a desperate sight. No wonder the crowd are, are kind of mourning and in shock. But strikingly, Luke tells us nothing of Jesus' physical appearance here. Did you notice that? It's not blood and guts, actually, because he's not writing a kind of melodramatic, manipulative kind of tug-on-the-heartstrings kind of account. No, it's, it's a factual, historical record kind of account. We don't get blood and guts. We get names and places. If you want to check out Simon's story, you can go to Cyrene and find him. Likewise, Joseph later. We're told the towns they come from. Actually, there's a bigger reason, though, why we're not just focusing on Jesus' physical suffering here. Because just look at what he says to this mourning crowd. I think this must be one of the most extraordinary death row speeches there's ever been. Just listen. Verse 28. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? It's extraordinary. Jesus is saying there's a far bigger tragedy than what's about to happen to him. In fact, what's going to happen to them is worse than what's going to happen to him. He's talking about the day when Jerusalem will be besieged and sacked by Rome. He's predicting the shocking events of AD 70, and about 30 years later, or 35 years later, they begin. His, his words could not be more strong. And just look at them. Verse 28, weep for yourselves and your children, not for me. Verse 30, Those will be days when people are begging to to, to be buried in an avalanche rather than face what's coming on them. Or I think most shocking of all, verse 29, in those days it would be better not to have had children. 
That's shocking. It's sobering. I mean, let me say, just from both personal experience and pastoral experience, couples who would love to have children but can't can face a deep grief and sorrow. And Jesus knows that. Luke knows that. The book began with childless Elizabeth. And yet Jesus is saying, so terrible is, is this coming judgment on the city that it, on that day it would be better to be childless. It could not be more strong what he's saying. He's saying, if you think this is awful, what they're doing to me, well, you should worry about yourselves and your families. I think verse 31 is basically saying, if, if, if the Roman authorities are doing this, when Jesus is here, when there's spiritual life, greenwood, life in Israel, what will happen when the window of opportunity is closed, when life has gone spiritually? This isn't the first time Jesus has warned Jerusalem about what's going to happen. He's actually had three warnings before this point. Every time he, he's longed that they would listen, that, that they take up his offer of forgiveness. Like a hen, he said, longing to gather her chicks under his wings. In chapter 19, he, he looked over the city and wept. If even you had known this day the things that make for peace. In chapter 21, he said, Alas for women and those who are pregnant, those who are nursing infants in those days, there'll be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Three major warnings already. And then at this moment, as he's heading to his own death, as he's got plenty to worry about himself, Still in compassion, he's saying, don't miss the point. This is not the tragedy. Facing God's judgment unforgiven is the tragedy. And it is God's judgment. In those warnings, Jesus makes it clear it's not just random political movements, international politics. No, judgment is coming from rejecting Jesus and the prophets. And lest we think that's only true of one city and, and, and kind of one tribe, Jesus in Luke 21 said that is a foretaste of a final day of judgment, a day of justice on all humanity. If we're new to Bible things, it's tempting to, to kind of write that off as, well, okay, here we go, religious scare stories, or I don't like to believe in a God who judges or gets angry at, at wrongdoing. But actually, when a warning comes, the question isn't really, do I like the warning? The question is, is the danger real? And Jesus' prediction here did come true. The rest will too. And so in his great compassion, Jesus says, my cross is not the tragedy. The tragedy would be facing God's judgment unforgiven. That's what we should be worrying about. And actually, you can see that in the second thing he says, down in verse 34, the second bit of speech from Jesus, because uh, he's not just concerned about the bystanders, he's also concerned about his own executioners. Verse 33, they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And then listen to this, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments absolutely extraordinary. While his executioners are gambling for his clothes, he is praying for their eternal safety. He knows that each of them will have to give an account to their maker. 
He knows the central question when we face God is, what did you do with my son Jesus? I sent him to warn you. I sent him to provide a way to be forgiven. What did you do with him? It's remarkable. Even as Jesus is hanging in agony on the cross, he's concerned for these executioners. They just got no sense of the crime they're involved in. How serious it is to reject Jesus, to mock Jesus, God's King. Now, of course, today we, we weren't physically involved in hanging Jesus on a cross. But we did see last week that actually uh, in the first century Jerusalem, everyone was involved in wanting to get rid of Jesus. And the reality is this description, they do not know what they're doing, would describe so many today when it comes to Jesus. They don't even know what they're doing, mocking me, ignoring me, using my name as a swear word, thinking they don't need me, thinking that they can judge me rather than realizing I'll be the one judging them in the end. But rather than getting angry and giving up on them, Jesus is praying, Father, forgive me them. It's absolutely extraordinary compassion. Jesus doesn't just talk the talk, Luke 6, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He walks the walk. Father, forgive them. Right to the end. That's our first point. The cross is not the big tragedy here. Facing God's judgment unforgiven is the tragedy. Point two, though, has another kind of shift of perspective. The cross is not the failure of a so-called king to save. This is God's promised servant king salvation. It's not a short heading, is it? I'm sorry. (laughs) My headings aren't very memorable today, but I hope the content will be memorable because this is the most important event in human history. The cross is not the failure of a so-called king to save. This is God's promised servant king salvation. Now, I said at the start, we we hear lots of reactions to the cross. A lot of them are mockery. And let's just hear, as I read through some of the mockery of Jesus on the cross, listen for the themes that keep coming repeatedly. So verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Can you hear the repeated terms of abuse? Call yourself a king. Call yourself the Christ. The Messiah king. Call yourself the king of the Jews. (laughs) I mean... What are you doing then? Humiliated on a Roman cross. What kind of king dies in agony? One of the earliest bits we know of anti-Christian graffiti. It's scratched onto a plaster wall in Rome. It's a couple of centuries later. But it says this. Alexamenos worships his God. And the picture above those words is a picture of Alexamenos, little man, stick man, and a man on a cross with a donkey's head. See the point? I mean, how ridiculous, Alex, (laughs) bowing before a crucified king. That's the first bit of mockery. How can a crucified Jesus really be a king? But then closely connected to that, 
is if he's got such power, why can't he save? Not even himself, let alone anyone else if he's the king. Again, the rulers scoffed, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. The soldiers, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Come on, Jesus. Isn't God's promised king supposed to be this great kind of savior? Isn't the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, isn't he supposed to bring salvation to the, to the nations and to Israel? You can't even save yourself. So much for being the long-promised king. But of course, there's deep, deep irony here. And if you've zoned out, I know that happens in sermons. I don't take it personally, don't worry. But if you have zoned out, just zone back in for this because it's, it's the most amazing thing is happening. At the moment that they mock him and taunt him for not being the king and not being able to save, they are fulfilling precisely what the Old Testament said would happen to the king as he saved people. Let me show you that. I'm going to read a few verses. The first we heard in our reading, Psalm 22. Don't worry to turn there. Psalm 22, the saving king, the Messiah, says this. I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Later in the same psalm, the king says, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Isn't that extraordinary? I mean, that could be... Luke, the historian, describing the cross, but it's not. It's David, a thousand years beforehand, describing the cross, setting the expectations that when the king does come, he'll suffer, he'll be mocked, he'll have pierced hands and feet, he'll have people who are gambling for his clothes. Isn't that extraordinary? At the very moment, they're mocking him for not being the king, they're proving that he has, actually is the king. We can go on, Psalm 69, another extract, another prayer of the king. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor, my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so I'm in despair. Wasn't easy up on the cross. I looked for pity, there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Those soldiers... Guess thinking they were so clever to kind of offer him, ah, ah, have, a, have a drink. So called King of the Jews. Fulfilling precisely what the King of the Jews would be. Or Isaiah 53. Jesus himself quoted this a couple of chapters ago um, to his followers to, to help them understand what was about to happen at the cross. The thing he quoted from Isaiah 53 was, He was numbered with the transgressors numbered amongst the criminals. Again, it's precisely fulfilled here. Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that's called the skull, they crucified him in the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. 
And that's not the only detail. Uh, he's buried like a rich man in his death, says Isaiah 53. And amazingly, thanks to Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus ends up, despite being a criminal, in a private, unused garden tomb, like a rich man in his death. Likewise, he was silent before, his, um, before, before the, the, the um, court case that um, uh, condemned him. He died innocent. It's all in Isaiah 53. Do you see, as, I mean, I could, I could give more than that, but time is moving on, so I'll stop there. Do you see that those aren't just vague impressions, like one day God's king will have a hard time. They are very explicit predictions that God's king will come as a suffering servant. He will suffer and die for the people. We're told how he'll live innocent. We're told how he'll be viewed, mocked, ridiculed. How he'll be treated, beaten, and falsely convicted. How he'll be killed uh, alongside criminals, pierced in his hands and feet. And how he'll be buried like a rich man. It's pretty hard to fake that, that combination of things. And so what irony, at the very moment when his enemies are thinking, ah, your, your grand claims, Jesus, are all falling flat at the cross. Actually, it's the climax of him proving, I am that king. And not just proving his identity, but achieving the salvation. You see, that's the main point of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 wasn't given to us just to, just to have a load of kind of predictions that we could tick off and think, ah, okay, that's him. Spot the difference, got it. <laughs> it wasn't actually written for that. It was, it was written to explain why the king had to suffer. The suffering servant had to come. That this innocent servant had to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. Had to take our place. Had to bear God's wrath, God's righteous indignation at human wickedness. That he had to carry all my pride and self-service and lies and use of others, rejection of our creator. He took it on his shoulders, bore it in his wounds. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, he chose to drink that cup of wrath, so we don't have to. And it is just the most extraordinary act of kindness. As Jesus stands in front of us as a shield against the blazing purity of God, the consuming wrath of a holy God, extraordinary he's achieving salvation as he hangs there and final brief thing on this point i think that's what verses 44 to 47 are wanting us to think about and this is uh, this picture of of darkness coming over the whole land and it's 12 o'clock to three o'clock by the way the the numbers so so we're kind of early afternoon it's not normally dark is the point and there's this darkness that comes over the land Um, like in egypt when the the last plague before the passover was darkness a sign of God's judgment over um, the land. But now Jesus takes that judgment on himself, like the Passover lamb dying to protect God's people, to shield them from God's wrath so that it passes over them. And as Jesus bears God's wrath, that then opens the doors to God's kingdom. That, I think, is why in verse 45 we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain was like a a massive keep-out barrier in the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was like a safety curtain. Uh, Don't come any closer. There's a holy God here. His, His blazing moral purity will consume anyone who comes through. 
But Jesus' death has now paid the price, bore the wrath. And so that insulation work of the temple, the safety barrier of the curtain, is no longer needed. Access to God's presence is open. How can I be sure of that? Well, because Jesus says to the criminal on the cross, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise was used of the Garden of Eden in the Bible. It's um, the last time that God had unfiltered access, sorry, people, humans had unfiltered access to God, direct access to his presence, unprotected by that temple curtain. On the temple curtain, actually, there were these angelic bouncers embroidered, kind of cherubim, saying, go no further. But now, the way is open again to live with God, to be with him in paradise, to live in his new creation. Do you see the point? Jesus' death on the cross, it's not the failure of the king to save. It is achieving salvation, opening the doors to God's presence. It is God's long-promised um, salvation. I know that's a lot to absorb. We're nearly there. Third point, and this will be more brief. Because remember, the camera isn't just on the cross, it's on the reactions. And so as we, as we take all that in, we need to think, what do I make then of the cross? And what Luke wants us to clock is that anyone who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven and enter God's presence. Anyone. Because there are a number of surprising people here. Uh, I mean, it's surprising that the centurion of all people is the one who notices Jesus' innocence. Uh, you might not expect uh, his executioner to realize they got it wrong. You might not expect a Roman to be one of the first people to spot Jesus' identity. It's a clue that the gospel is going to go to all nations, all types of people. Let's be honest, I guess we can kind of understand if, if the centurion watched this, why he would realize Jesus is someone quite different. I don't know how many hundreds of executions he'd, he'd been part of. I bet not one of them prayed for him while they were hanging there. Likewise, I assume people normally kind of rail against heaven and against anyone else, just spitting with fury and rage. I'm sure he never saw someone like Jesus trust God and love other people, even as he hung there. That's the Roman centurion. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea in verse 50, he's another surprise, isn't he? Because he's actually part of the Jewish religious council who put Jesus, uh, originally agreed to put Jesus to death, instrumental in the arrest. And he's rich. We've seen through Luke, it's impossible or hard for rich people um, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But here God has made the impossible possible. So surprising uh, example showing us anyone can benefit from Jesus' death. But as we close, let's just look at um, the thief on the cross one last time. Verse 39. One of the criminals who, was, who were hanged there railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and others. And actually, we know from the other Gospels that both criminals initially were mocking Jesus. But then something is going on in this man's heart. He suddenly realizes that he's wrong. And so verse 40, the other rebuked him. really a striking point that um, 
It's in the context of other people mocking Jesus that this man had to stick his neck out and ask for forgiveness. Joseph of Arimathea is in the context of Pilate and the opposition to Jesus. He went and asked for the body. Jesus warned us back in chapter 9, all those months ago, you need to not be ashamed of me. And we've seen with Peter, that's easier said than done. But here this man realizes, I need Jesus. Everyone else may be mocking him. I need him. And so he says, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's just an amazing promise, isn't it? It's just extraordinary. This man who's, who's totally stuffed up his life. He's wronged God. He's wronged others. He's wronged himself, given where he's end up. He starts to realize that he is on a collision course with his maker, and only Jesus can help. We saw that ABC. Step one, A, admits. He admits he's guilty. We indeed are justly under a sentence of condemnation, receiving the due reward for our deeds. That's the first step. If you want to become a Christian, that's the first step. We need to realize I am not okay, not by God's standards. Step two, though, after admitting I'm guilty, believing that Jesus died innocent. I don't know how much the thief understood that Jesus was a Passover lamb, that there was a swap going on, but Luke wants us to understand that, that Jesus died innocently in my place. That's step two, believe Jesus died innocent in my place. But actually, you can do step one and step two and not be safe for eternity. As in, you can believe all the right truths, but never call on Jesus for salvation. Step three, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's it. There isn't a step four. Striking that, isn't it? We sometimes do a kind of bargain of, okay, please forgive me, Lord, and I'll make it up to you. I'll do some good works. I'll, I'll do some giving. I'll, I'll come, to, come to church enough times or whatever. But there isn't a step four for this guy. He's got nothing to offer. He's only going to be alive for a few more hours. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's what it takes, because it's all about him, Jesus, and his death. Zero about us. It's just like that tax collector. Remember the difference? The Pharisee, oh, thank you, God, that I'm better than other people and I do loads of stuff for you. Didn't go home justified. The tax collector who said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that was enough. And so Jesus says to this man who stuffed it all up but knew where to turn, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The moment he died, he would be safe with Jesus in God's presence, waiting for the great resurrection day and the new creation. So I'm going to close now praying that prayer. For those of us who are Christians, um, take it to heart, because one day you might have the privilege, and let's pray we would, have the privilege of sharing this with someone and seeing their eternity changed. Uh, for those of us who are looking in and might now have got to the point where you've heard enough, Please echo this prayer along with me in your hearts. I'll pray the, the ABC one by one. Let's pray. 
Father, we admit that we are not right with you. We've not loved you or others as we should. We deserve your judgment. But we believe that King Jesus died in our place, your innocent, suffering servant. And so we call on you to forgive us our sins and give us a place in your kingdom for Jesus' sake. Amen.